0: Hello, you are listening to the Bethel Atlanta Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right. I was just, I was running it through my head. I think this is the first time I've ever preached inside of a tent. So thank you for joining me for this new experience. Um, yeah, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm excited. So I was, um, you know, I heard a little bit last minute that I was going to be, I was going to be speaking this weekend, and so if any of you did come specifically for Chad, I, I apologize. I am from Southern California and have surfed before, though, so it's pretty much the same thing, <laughs> um, pretty much the same thing. Um, no, I, so I was just talking with the Holy Spirit about what, 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 what he wanted me to share with you guys this week, and I had a topic that I've been, it's, it's a topic that I, that comes up in me at least <sighs> once, every, once every three or four years, this exact same topic regarding this exact same verse just kind of pops up again, and I'm feeling it kind of swell up in my heart again, and I wanted to, to share it with you guys. And you guys have heard me teach messages like this before if you've been around for a little while that have to do with, you know, me, me growing up a church kid, growing up on the mission field, growing up a pastor's kid. And so there are certain scriptures, certain concepts that I've heard so many times that they almost lose their meaning a little bit. You ever had that experience before? So I, um, so uh, hopefully, in, with that little prelude, you'll, you'll forgive my introduction here, I, I'm going to be teaching about what used to be my least favorite scripture in the Bible. Okay which is John 3.16. Now, before any of you stand up and throw something heavy at me saying, you don't like the gospel, rah! Let me explain. So we we know, I bet we all, or at least 90% of us have this verse memorized, so if you will, with me, please, quote John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, begotten son, whatever, yeah, whoever should believe in him, Shall not perish, but have everlasting life, awesome, some of us only son, some of us only begotten son, little different translations but um, so it 's funny because this scripture used to bother me, and at first it, I thought that maybe this was and this this is something that popped up in my junior high days, my high school days, where this you know I would drive up uh, i 'd be you know just learning to drive, and i 'd come up and there 's a bumper sticker john 's three sixteen and you know or it would, you know, be some like a political candidate's face, and then John 3.16. I'm like, is that is that for or against? I don't know. This is confusing. Um and I just had this little spike just pop up in my heart. And at first I thought it was because, oh, it's because I'm a I'm a cool hip uh preacher guy, so I want, you know, I want one with the freshest scriptures. And everyone knows that one, everyone has that memorized. But something inside me thought, that is, it's deeper than me just thinking that scripture gets used too much. Why does this scripture bother me? And I remember I was in ministry school when I was uh, 19 years old, and again, that scripture popped up, and again, I had this little pang in my heart that felt bothered by the scripture. And, and just so you know, whenever a scripture pops up and it bothers you, that's a good sign that the Lord has something to say to you, just general advice. Um... And I was like, Holy Spirit, why does this scripture bother me? And I heard him say, because you think it's generic. What does that mean? And I realized that this scripture for me, maybe because it's used so much, maybe because it's for God so loved the world, but for whatever reason, this scripture to me felt like a blanket generic kind of love. A, oh, you know, it, it to me tapped into... Some of the ideas I had received or I had kind of locked in my heart when I was a kid of that, well, you just have to love everyone because you're supposed to, and you're supposed to be loving because you're supposed to, and you need to love everyone because the Bible says so. Or, and, you know, I think this can be personified in little phrases like, you know, oh, I have to love them, but I don't have to like them, you know, things like that. That kind of love that doesn't really mean anything, you know, (laughs) know what I mean? And this scripture, for whatever reason, had gotten paired with that idea I knew I was wrong, but I didn't know why. So I'm going to pause there for a moment. I'm going to kind of tie this together with a, with a story from history that I've, that I've read a few times that, for me, is a wonderful example of this same principle in action. So who is familiar with the British explorer Percy Fawcett? Anyone know who that is? Okay, good. <laughs> New information. They made a movie about it. I'm about to spoil it for you, so I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> So Percy Fawcett was like your your classic, uh, you know, early 1900s British explorer. Like, he's got the hat, he's out, you know, traveling these uncharted lands. It's a cool point in history when, like, there's these big blank spots on certain maps. of like, we don't know what's there. And these dudes were like, let's go see, you know, and go and let's map this and, you know, write this all down. And uh, by all accounts, he was actually a pretty cool dude. You know, I know that there's kind of weird cultural things at the time, but he was... One who is noted for, especially compared to his um, contemporaries, being very respectful of native cultures and things of that nature. Where really he liked to be respectful of the land that he was going to. And so he was a pretty cool guy. And just a really, really good explorer. Just had this endurance. Believed it was like a mission from God to discover all of creation. To discover all of the land. And his main kind of focus, especially in the latter part of his life, was that he believed that in the Amazon, in South America, that there must be a great civilization that was there. Now, this was something that was really debatable because if you think the Amazon, you think all these crazy jungles and things like that and, you know, panthers and you know, anacondas and stuff, you think of all this crazy life that's there, which is true, but they call it kind of a, um, a a secret desert or a hidden desert because there are so many different kinds of predators, so many different kinds of plants, so many different kinds of animals active in this region that even though it's super lush looking, if you're traveling through there, it's actually really hard to find food because there's so much competition. And so the scientists of the time believed it's impossible for a big civilization to have grown here. It's just these small tribes that are here because it just could never sustain life. But Percy Fawcett believed that there was life there and he went on expedition after expedition searching for evidence of this lost city. And he, he found little stuff. You know, it was kind of the same story of like the, the, the city of El Dorado, the city of gold, you know, this kind of thing. It was all this sort of same concept that he was looking for. And he got all of his money together, got every multiple times to send out an expedition, to go on an expedition, to search for this city. And he found... Little pieces of evidence he found piles of pottery he found you know these things that would lead to oh, there' has to have been a more large established civilization here, but he didn't find it trip after trip after trip till finally interest was running out a little bit, money was running out a little bit, and kind of faith in him was starting to run out a little bit because he'd been out there so many times and really turned up nothing and again, every time there had been difficulties he he was you know, really blessed in that he didn't get sick very often, but, you know, in the stories of his travels, there's all these stories of his people that are with him, like, having bugs laying eggs in their skin, and, you know, all this wonderful nightmare stuff that, you know, and all these d- d- diseases, just because it's just this difficult area to go through. Sorry if that grossed you out, but... And, and you're welcome if that made you want to read more. Um, but... Uh, so every time... He never quite made it as far into the jungle as he wanted to because of some problem, because someone got sick and he had to get out to save their life because there was some kind of disaster and they lost their supplies. But finally he's like, this is it. I'm going in there or I'm and finding this city or I'm not coming out. This is this is it. He pulled the last of his resources. He brought his, his oldest son with him on this journey. And they, they got a little small caravan together. They went out there and they were never seen again. And in fact, it was so mysterious how they disappeared, and this guy had been so successful, even when there was big disasters, that uh, multiple search parties were sent. And actually, to this day, if I remember correctly, over 100 people have passed away just searching for him and trying to find out what happened. And his his entire belief was couched in this idea that even though evidence suggests that no large, you know, empire or civilization could exist in the Amazon, it must have been, just because of different little pieces of evidence, different clues that he found when he was out there. Everyone else, a lot of the thinkers of the day thought he was crazy, like, oh, you just can't have a big civilization out there, you're searching for nothing. And he died searching for this thing. So let's pause that story and rewind back. We'll get, we'll get back to Percy Fawcett in just a second. But so I, I, upon realizing that this scripture bothered me—one of the foundational scriptures about the gospel, about the good—a a scripture probably better than any that summarizes what the gospel is—was bothering me. It's not a great sign, right? You can agree. It's okay. It's not a great, not a great sign. <laughs> not a great sign. And so I started digging in to well, what. What does this verse mean? And so, first I said, Holy Spirit, what, okay, so for God, so loved the world. Okay, God, what is love? And he said, baby, don't hurt me. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) He he did not say that, that was a lie. (laughs) Um, um, what What is love? Well, when you want to know what love is, and I want you to show me, then I, <laughs> I'm going to stop. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. Where do you go? First you Corinthians 13, right? So turn with me where, if you would, for a second. If you guys have been around for all, you know that this is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible for a multitude of reasons. But, and this is another one of those ones that maybe we've run through and run over so many times that it can feel a little bit, a little bit uh, well-worn. Um, but as I as I approached this scripture, I had something that my seventh grade English teacher taught me. And if again, if you've been around for a while, you know that I bring up my seventh grade English teacher quite a lot. Um, she was a very very mean person, but man, she taught me a lot about life. So um, one time she started our seventh grade class. She said, as as she finished the roll call, she said, "I hate every single one of you for your own unique and special reason." <laughs> Uh Miss Carell, she was wonderful anyway um uh, uh, anyway, so one of the things that Miss Graell did that I admired was that she loved her subject, and she didn 't care if a bunch of seventh graders did not love her subject. She loved her subject and she was going to present it well and One of the things that she said one day when a student was complaining because we were reviewing some topic of grammar or whatever else that we had reviewed before or had felt well-worn and well-done, she said, "Um, mastery only heightens your love for the fundamentals. She said, amateurs disdain the fundamentals. Masters only fall deeper in love with the fundamentals. It's pretty, pretty, pretty high thinking for a bunch of seventh graders. So, um, and that that phrase stuck with me. That when I start feeling a disdain for the fundamentals, it may be because I'm stepping into that amateur mindset of ah, we already did that. And the truth is, in, in almost any field, in almost any sport, in any, in almost any area whatsoever, w- once you start speaking to someone who's a master in their field. You can hear a deep love for the fundamentals of their craft, for the fundamentals of what they do, because they really understand why they exist. And so with that, what is love? 1 Corinthians 13, chapter 4, well, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hope, hopes, and always preserves love never fails and as I was reading this scripture with this with this new quest in my mind of what does John three sixteen actually mean, I, I just had this it 's a small thing, but it, it led to a lifetime. Of mystery. Um, Where I read, Love is patient, but and this is just this is me reading into it, so this is not the the written word of the God. This is kind of my, my opinion and thought process with it. Love is patient, but patience is not love. Love is kind, but kindness is not love. It does not envy, but a lack of envy is not love. Meaning that these are all the indicators. These are the highlights. These are the the signs that love is present. But none of them by themselves is love. In fact, maybe in some cases, one of them by themselves might actually be the absence of love. And in that little moment, in that little thought process of, it's you know obviously love ha- is kind and love is patient. But just because I'm being patient, it does not automatically mean that I'm acting out of love. And just because I'm being kind, it does not automatically mean that I'm acting out of love. And as I entered that process, I went back to John 3:16. I realized, for God so loved the world, I was hearing that as God was so patient and kind with the world that he gave his only begotten son. And I, in that moment, discovered a lens that I had, which was that the entire gospel was God as a tolerant parent who was cleaning up the mess of annoying and bothersome children. And I realized that that was wrong. That was not the full picture. While God is certainly patient and he is certainly kind, that's not all that he is. And that's not all that the gospel is. And if we reduce it to that it becomes a blanket statement that can actually be harmful in the same way and maybe some of you have been in this experience in a culture like ours where we really believe in the goodness of God and we believe in his kindness where someone says God is good and all of a sudden that's painful to you because you're going through something or you're dealing with something you don't need to raise your hand but I'm sure there's many of us that have had that moment for one reason or another well that's probably because we think that for some reason his goodness does not have any room for pain. That, that that goodness would have to ignore pain or or not consider it or not include it in its assessment of a situation. But that's not true. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And when we really read that scripture, we realize that it, it, some of those seem like they could be in opposition to one another. Okay, it does not celebrate evil, it rejoices in truth. So it's about what's true, what's right, but it's also kind. How can you stand up for what's right, speak the truth, but also remain kind? How can you be patient while also not delighting in evil and speaking the truth? And for me, any time, and, and still to this day, this has probably been about 10 years of me processing this, this same little formula over and over again. As soon as I try to put hard definitions on the full magnitude of what love is, as soon as I... Try to pull love off of, off of, or rather out of the air of mystery and find a place for it on the shelf. I find that I have to leave a few of those qualities behind, or make those separate, or make those a certain cases kind of thing to fit it onto a box or to fit it onto a shelf. I have to limit the scope of what love is for it to accommodate what I want it to be. Does that make sense? Not, let's hop over for one second to another scripture. This is one of my favorites. There's, there's a lot of scary scriptures in the Bible. This is probably the most terrifying, uh, at least to me, um, but I, I adore it. Um, so it's 1 John uh, chapter 4, and uh, I can, you don't need to turn here unless you want to, because i was going to be here for a second, but 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. I like it because it's got love in there so many times that we feel pretty good and we forget that somewhere in the middle says, if you don't love, you do not know God. <laughs> and so as I'm getting into this process of being willing to, to leave love into this realm of mystery, to be willing to f- pull elements of it to something that's finite, that's measurable, kindness, goodness, patience, these things, willing to put those things in a fixed place, but allowing love to be something that's bigger than my mind can hold, because after all, if God is love, he is bigger than our mind can hold. I began to look at the rest of the scripture, John three sixteen: for God so loved the world, well, what's the world, and who's the world, and what's up with the world? Well, if you look up in in uh, Greek, the word there for the world is one of the biggest words there is. It's where we get the word cosmos from, and it really kind of means everything. It it doesn't mean just the world as in all those sinners or the planet that we live on. It actually. Sometimes has implications of governmental structures, of principles of science, of principles of social social interaction. All of all of the thing, all the big things and the little things that make up the world. And then I realized another hitch in my in my thought process that. For God so loved the world, because I had this generic view of what for God so loved the world meant, and maybe, maybe you guys didn't process this or don't process salvation the same way that I do, but I kind of thought, even though I would hear people say all the time, you know, oh, Jesus would have still gone to the cross if it was just for you, that was one of those things that, to me, for whatever reason, it just kind of felt like a nice sentiment. You know? Um... But when I really looked at what these words mean, the idea of God so loved the world that God looked at all of what the world is and said, "Yeah, there's probably enough of them to be to be worth it." Or you know, "Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll fix the whole thing." That's actually not really what that word means. That word is both broad and wide, but also very specific. It's it's. All of the world, but also all the little things inside the world. And to be okay with that idea, I had to step into a thought process of, well, there's things about society or governmental structure or all those things that I don't think are godly. I, don't, I think we can maybe take a quick look at the world real quick in our brain. One or two things that are not godly there, Yeah. One or two at least, maybe more. Uh, and yet God still loved the world. And I realized that in my definition to fully love something like that, I would either have to agree with it or I would have to restrain some of those qualities found in 1 Corinthians 13. And maybe you're the same and maybe you're different but I don't think that that's what God did. I think that love is just bigger than we understand. I think that love can fully disagree, but still come close. Can fully not accept an action or a belief, but still come close. Can can fully be experiencing pain, can be in the middle of disconnection, but choose to value connection and the pursuit of it, and all of a sudden, at least for me, this scripture that had been that I had heard so many times that I had memorized so many times that I had seen on so many bumper stickers that it almost didn 't mean anything, took on a personal depth that I had never experienced before that God loved that God was good in a way that I cannot possibly imagine. So much so that he saw everything that the world was, everything that the world, w- and everything that the world would be, and said, I want to save all of them. And not just save as in bippity boppity boo it's all fixed, but I'm going to send something that costs me dearly so that they could choose if they want to have what I'm offering because I care about their free will that much and I care about the power of their choices that much that I would do something as painful as one can do, give something as costly as one could give so that people could have the option of choosing everything that I have for them. And it made John 3.16 a lot better <laughs> in my heart. What, the point of what I want to get to today is we're, we're in what what I understand is called uh, the, the South. Some people call it this. Um, some people call it things also like the Bible Belt. It's kind of like on the like side hip. It's more like the Bible holster or something. I don't know, you know. <laughs> United States is anyway. Never mind. Um, Bible holster sounds cooler. Anyway, um, I've I've been a Christian my, for as long as I can remember. I got saved when I was three years old at the post office. Um, you you got to do something while you're waiting in the line. Um, and I have run into probably at this point, over well over a 100 of these little truths that have become generic, that have become this thing that's just kind of in the background of my, of my relationship with God. And the more that I dig deep, the more that I pursue, I realize that there is so much depth in everything he has ever said and everything that he has ever done. And the idea that I would miss any of it, just because I... Had set it on a shelf somewhere. It's tragic to me. We were in, and you know, we were we were talking with uh, Michael Maiden when he was when he was here visiting with us, uh, the staff, uh, all the staff together, and he said, "You know," and I'm, I'm summarizing, but he said, "You're doing a really amazing thing here. You're bringing a kingdom-focused church into the Bible Belt." And you know, I I've said this before. I think. You know, sometimes we look at religion or the Bible Belt and things like that, and we think of it just as a negative thing. I think there's just as many blessings as there are challenges, and that's that's important to remember. Um, but one of the challenges is the same one that I grew up with, which is that this is all so normal that it can be reduced down to normal. <laughs> Probably at least for me, the most tragic figures in the entirety of the Bible are the Pharisees. You know, we like to make fun of them. You know, uh, when I was a kid, there was this funny song we used to be singing. You know, I don't want to be a Pharisee, cause a Pharisee ain't fair. You see, <laughs> very clever. I know that. Whoever came up with that was like, it's right there. <laughs> um, it's right there. <laughs> Gonna make millions. Um, <laughs> you know, we make make fun of them, and you know, Jesus definitely rough, rough them around <laughs> a little bit. But it's so tragic that people who had committed their entire lives to the study of God's written word missed the manifestation of the Messiah they had been searching for. In fact, rejected him whole cloth. <laughs> there's very few examples of people who even engage with him at all in fact John 3:16 is comes from the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus which is one of the few times you see a pharisee actually having a real conversation with Jesus not just trying to trick him or or you know do something like that and and it's easy for even things like people saying things like oh the bible belt oh religious oh we hate religion and again, even have those terms become something that's generic and doesn't mean anything. Because I've, ran, I've been to churches where everyone dances and waves flags and sings crazy songs and yells and speaks in tongues during worship that are just as restricted by religion as whatever super strict Baptist church. Because the relationship with God is not about connection with him it's about this is how we do this thing that we do, and we do it this way because we do it this way. You know what I mean? So I have this this um, little little um, image that I like to to put in my head, and it's it's actually what we've started to base our curriculum on at the School of Supernatural Ministry, is when we're discovering our identity in Christ, when we're discovering how, how, who we are and how we're meant to react to the world and, and respond to the world and engage with the world, how do, we, how, do we, how do we do that? How does that model? What does it mean to find your identity in Christ? And I'm sure there's a lot of good definitions. The one that I've come up with is very simple, and this is, this is a simplified version of it, but it's, it's first I discover how God relates to me. What does he think about me? What does he believe about me? How does he see me? How does he view me? And then after that, from that, after seeing how God relates to me, then I decide, I discover how I relate to God. What is my responsibility in this relationship? How do I respond to this kind of goodness, this kind of kindness, this kind of glory? What, how do I engage with him? And in that relationship, from that relationship of discovering how he thinks about me, and how I relate to him. I then discover how I relate to the world. And the world meaning everybody and everything. And I love this little model because that's simple. And I think most of us would agree that that's a good, that's a good way to you know write, write that down. But I, let's take something very, very simple. Like the, God is our Lord. He is our master. He, he, he directs us and he leads us. Now, most of us who grew up in the church, if we think, oh, you know, we want to serve the Lord, you may have had been an experience, have been in a culture where if you're not picking up chairs every time, if you're not cleaning up trash, if you're not scrubbing toilets, then, you know, you're uh, prideful or, or whatever version of that. If you really want to love the Lord, you're doing this, you're doing this. That's because we first learn how we are supposed to relate to God rather than that being formed out of who God is to us. When we see what kind of Lord he is, when we see what kind of leader he is, when we see what kind of father he is, the natural response is to serve his vision. It's not because we have to. It's not because it's the rules. It's because he's got the best idea. (laughs) It's because he's an empowering master. That's because he is one who doesn't just give us busy work but places us in purposeful order in in his master plan to release his kingdom on earth. He doesn't just make us run the treadmill, you know? Some of us learn that we're supposed to respond at, to God as a father before discovering what kind of father he is. And then we use our own model and experience of our spiritual fathers and our earthly fathers to view him. That could be disastrous because he's so much better. In fact, I, I would even go the opposite way, that we should learn how to look for our earthly spiritual fathers by learning about what kind of father God is and learning how to be sons that way and find fathers that way. So this could hit lots of different topics. This can hit from lots of different angles. But what I want to boil this down to today is I would like to challenge every single person in this courtyard to, to let the love of God be the tuning fork for your life because there's a lot of good tuning forks out there. There's a lot of good principles, there's a lot of good ideas, there's a lot of there's a lot of needs that we have, there's a lot of emotions that come up, there's a lot of things that can be our guiding light and we don't want to ignore those things. But I would like to encourage you to let the central tuning fork of your life be the love of God. Something that is so big that we can't hold it in our mind. Something that is mysterious, something that can be hard to define. But I have never once regretted the pursuit of discovering more of what it, his manifested love looks like on earth. Is that making sense? Yeah. So now that we have modern technology and things like that, people have you know, gone with satellites and helicopters over to where Percy Fawcett was exploring. We've sent modern archaeologists out there. And we still haven't found evidence of him or where he ended up, unfortunately, because that, that area is so thick and, and jungly, it's still difficult for us to get through on the ground level. But we found the city that he was looking for. We found evidence of a massive civilization that was growing in that area. Now, the reason it took so long to discover was that they mainly used wood and thatch and materials like that to build up these cities. In fact, there was a point in history um, where the the cities that were there in the Amazon were actually bigger than London and Paris combined at the time. Uh, if you want lots and lots of information, 1491, really good book. Um, it's about that thick, so run away if you want to. Um, but really good about this, that, that, all the arche- uh, archaeological stuff they found about that. But he walked through that city multiple times on his journeys, multiple times. But he was in a culture that believed the great cities used stone to build their buildings. They built permanent structures. And due to things that happened, the the civilization had died out. And because they used all these very organic materials, they had washed away, rotted away. And the only real evidence was these um, little little hillocks of where they had kind of terraformed the area there to make their uh, aqueducts and stuff like that operate. And once you knew where it was, you could really dig in and see how the whole thing was set up. But... He he had walked through there dozens of times. He describes the very hillocks that were the evidence of the city he was looking for multiple times in his journals. He did not find what he was looking for because he did not understand that what he was looking for was fundamentally different than what he expected. And I don't want any of us to wander around our Christian life, to go from church to church, to go from friend group to friend group, to wander around looking for something when we have the the, the wrong photograph in our mind of what we're looking for. And the only thing that I know to put at the very center, there's, there's more, but the only thing that I know to put at the very center of that photograph, of that map, of that evidence, is God's love something that is mysterious, something that is difficult to pin down, something that is more complicated than, than I would like it to be, maybe. But when I put that at the very center of how I, the, the, the lens that I look through, when I'm looking for what I want out of life, when I'm looking for what I want out of my friend groups, out of my church, out of all these different things, I find myself running into things that are better than I expected. I find myself discovering things that are more fantastic, that are deeper, and I feel myself growing and changing because of my interaction with his love. Does that make sense? I believe that we are in the middle and going into a deeper part of a season of Christianity that is unlike any other. Never never before in human history has communication been so easy, so instantaneous, and so obtainable by so many people. The only comparable point in history, and it's not even a, a fully apt comparison, is the invention of the printing press. Like The idea that you could rapidly print your ideas down and have someone carry them for 16 weeks you know, over to a place. Again, comparatively, you would have to go there and talk and then go over here and talk, but the idea that you could duplicate your stuff, it was this massive explosion of information when the printing press became readily available we're at that times like a billion probably more than a billion there's some pro, there's probably some crazy uh, exponent you could calculate about how quickly information gets distributed it is more important than it has ever been that every single one of us individually has that guiding light of God's love because we are truly ambassadors of his kingdom everywhere that we go we are truly able to say words that can reach every nation on this planet. We are truly capable of releasing his love, of releasing revival in a way that, that it would have been impossible 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And I think that parts of it only work if we recognize our own responsibility to be stewards of his love. It's important that we find communities that His love. It's, we need our brothers and sisters to speak into these areas. We can't figure it out on our own. We need our mothers and fathers. We need sons and daughters that we're pouring into. But we need to take personal responsibility of, I am an ambassador of his kingdom, whether I want to be or not. By inheriting salvation, I am inheriting that role. It, they, they are tied together repeatedly in the scripture. And I believe that we are going to have more of a chance to represent real love than we ever have before. I do believe, however, that the way that we get there is learning how to repent. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. Repentance isn't, you know, let me grab some of that gravel and sprinkle it here and we'll walk on our knees, you know, I want to make sure to roll up your pants so that it hurts more. Um, and, you know, you come up to the altar and say how bad you are. And the person here at the prayer line says, yes, you are very bad. Um, <laughs> repentance very, is very simple. It just means change your mind. It just means when when you interact with a superior reality, when you run into a superior picture of God's love, this mysterious love that we are trying to discover that you recognize it for what it is and say, I'm changing my mind and what I believe to accommodate his truth, a a, a love that hates evil yet is kind, a love that that is all about the truth but also is about patience, a love that is bigger than I can comprehend. That means we're gonna have to repent a lot, (laughs) not because we're all so horrible and so bad, but because he's that good. He's that good. Thank you. <laughs> so if you would just stand with me, and we have, um, I feel like this is a fun opportunity. We have, we have our communion tables here, and I just want to take a moment um, to just ask the Holy Spirit individually, Lord, is there something that I need to repent of? And again, I, I, even when I say that repent word, that might trigger all these different things inside your heart. From, I just literally repented to all of you about this, my judgment of this scripture. You know, it's, it's simple. I just I misunderstood this scripture and belittled it. And I'm, I would just say, like, Lord, I'm sorry for not trusting that you mean every word that you say. You know, simple things like that. But it, when the Holy Spirit highlights those things, it comes with the grace to grow past what we've been believing, what, the way we've been leaving, living. And I'll say this too. Most of the struggles that I've had with the people around me, with my work situations, with my life, those times I felt stuck, it's usually because I had to repent of something. Not that I'm some horrible person, but that I was missing a, an essential part of God's kingdom that he was trying to give me, that I had something else parked in that parking space. You know what I mean? And so it's simply saying, I'll move my car for you, Jesus. <laughs> you know, it's, it's silly, but it's, it's so, so true. And so if you would just close your eyes for just one more minute. We'll be, we'll be done here in just a second. But Holy Spirit, if there's an area, big or small, Something that, some, even things that may seem so minuscule that they don't even seem worth bringing up. If there is something that you would like us to repent for, not condemn ourselves for, not judge ourselves for, but exchange for something superior that you're ready to release on us. We ask that you just highlight those things right now. And again, if you if you feel that sense of judgment, if you feel that sense of shame, that is not the Holy Spirit. <laughs> he knows your mind and he knows your heart. He so loved the world, which means you and the way that you think and the way that you operate and the way that you happen, that he sent his only begotten son so that you could receive everything that he had hoped and planned for you. And as we're here, I'm going I'm to invite the prayer team to come up up front and and line up here. If you're a second year student, that'd be that'd be great as well to come and pray for people and I just want to take a moment here we'll, we'll, we'll play some music in just a minute but as we're here if there's something that the Lord highlights that oh, I need to repent for that just come up here you don't you don't even necessarily need to share with the person here but just have them pray with you and after you you do that just go ahead and take communion and again if you don't feel like you have anything to repent for that's okay he'll bring something up later um you can go ahead and take communion um But I just love partnering the act of submitting to Jesus by doing an act that he told us to do in remembrance of him. The act of submitting not just our actions or or with what we're doing, but the way that we think to his measurement, to his weighing, and to his approval. So Lord, guide us in how to repent over and over again a hundred times if we need to. Guide us in how to fully receive everything that you've promised us. And teach us, Lord, to have your love at the very center of our map so that we do not wander over and over again in search for something that is right in front of us. Just as I wandered over John 3.16 over and over again Missing that my Lord was speaking there. So just take your time. And as soon as you're ready, you're welcome to come up in prayer or if you just feel like you're ready to go and take communion, you can go ahead and do that. But just be led by the Holy Spirit.